Hey, I'm Omid Farhang, CCO at Momentum, and welcome to the season two finale of the Talking to Ourselves podcast. My guest today is Suzanne Powers, Global Chief Strategy Officer of McCann World Group, where she leads strategic development for clients across all brands, regions, and agencies in the vast McCann World Group network. For all her accomplishments, Suzanne was just named by AdAge as the 2019 Chief Strategy Officer of the Year. Under her leadership, McCann was ranked the number one most creatively effective global network by the Effies in 2018 and 2019. They were named the Effies Agency of the Year in 2017 and 2018. Most recently, Suzanne appeared on the cover of Adweek in recognition of McCann World Group claiming 2019 Global Agency of the Year for the first time in nearly two decades. Suzanne joined McCann in 2013 from Crispin Porter Bogusky, where she served as Global Strategy Officer and led the global development of the agency. Before that, she led brand strategy at TBWA for over a decade, helping to develop the disruption philosophy and practice worldwide. She's been an industry leader throughout her career, including as a frequent keynote speaker and award show judge. She is past chairperson of the 4A's planning committee. In 2016, she was recognized by the Advertising Women of New York with its Changing the Game Award as one of the industry's catalysts of innovation. She's the proud mom of teenage boys, And on a personal note, in 2010, when I went to the UK to help relaunch the CPB London office, I was in way over my head until Suzanne showed up to help guide me through it. And she's been a dear friend and a big sister to me ever since. So she's the perfect guest to have for the season two finale of this podcast. This is Suzanne Powers and I talking to ourselves. So this is the part where we start by pretending we weren't in a meeting together, right. working on a pitch for the last 90 minutes. And I go, oh, hello, my old friend, Suzanne. And I don't have to say the complexification is killing me. Yes, go on. <laughs> we start all of these in the same spot, which okay. is, where are you from? What your parents do? Oof. Okay. Um, where am I from? I am technically from Denver, Colorado. You probably did not know that. I didn't. But I am actually soulfully, spiritually from Montreal, Canada. Because my entire family are Montrealers, and I was born accidentally in the United States of America. So I can be president of the yeah. United States. I'm a natural-born citizen. My mother basically had me early. You're not not on that trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's some issues, you know. <laughs> but maybe nobody cares anymore. So you grew up in Montreal? Till I was eight. Okay. You speak French? I try. Yeah. But not like Celine Dion. Do you have any family still there that, that has you go back? I do. I have a cousin actually in our business. Oh, He's good. the founder of Sticky Media. And what did uh, 12-year-old Suzanne want to be when she grew up? President of the United States. Really? Of course. Really? That or um, president was on my list. Um, some kind of a person that would not be homeless because I was very paranoid that I would not be able to make a living. Um, I also thought I might want to be an actress but knew that I couldn't. And then I finally decided I wanted to be a newscaster. At what point do you discover the marketing profession as something you might be good at? Um, I went to college at UCSD. So that's not the party San Diego school. That's like the nerd academic school. And the least nerdy degree at UCSD was communications. And it was the study of culture. So the 60s and why that was interesting. Um, MTV and why as a phenomena that changes everything. And I loved all of those classes because I thought I was just – 
I mean, I, I thought I was so lucky to learn about these cultural movements, and it was fascinating to me. Right. And I didn't know how to make a living out of that until I started to understand that that was about influence and culture creation. And by the way, advertising is a little bit about that. And it might have been my mother who said, you know, advertising is this amazing thing where you can actually change culture. And I was like, huh. And so I took a couple classes and realized that it was all connected in some way, shape, or form. Um, and studying people and humans and how people make decisions became part of my major as I ended in university. And then I got an internship at a crazy little PR company, and I loved that. And that took me into our entire weird marketing world. In San Diego? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Don't we even s- remember the name. You don't? I don't. Tiny little company. We skipped what do your parents do? Uh, my mother was a uh, – she was a teacher – and then she started a seniors education program in Montreal. Hmm. So she's a very creative person. Yeah. Um, and she's been an interior designer. She's been an artist. She's all sorts of things. My father is in medicine. So I have this hardcore science and then this very creative side as, uh, as my background. So it's your mom actually gave you a little bit of the the push or the inspiration mm-hmm. to go into this profession. Your dad maybe kind of indifferent. Let's see how this thing plays out. He before was like, I-, I don't even understand what that thing is, but do you? And then and then I was working on Dole for a while, and he goes, Oh, so do you put the pineapples on the billboard? I'm like, No. <laughs> I'm like, I do the stuff that decides maybe a pineapple should be on a billboard. Right. He's like, Oh, super fascinated by it. But the research side of what I do is certainly stoked by my dad because he's he was a medical researcher in academic medicine. So I think that part of my brain is definitely from watching that. Was TBWA your first crack at sort of the big time of our industry? Yeah. I, you know, I started in the mothership, Shiat ALA. Um, and, of course, you go there. And I'd already been a planner by then. Um, but, the, but the home of planning was in America was Shiat Day. You know, that's where people came over, came over from that place called – England and taught everybody in America what planning was. So I thought I was going to this, you know, place that had all the secrets of planning. Now, I happened to get there in a time when maybe the secrets were buried or something, but I just ended up having to make up a lot of stuff, which I hate to say out loud, but I am. Um, So it was very creative and it was very open. Um, Jean-Marie had just written a book called Disruption. Uh, So I got to help make sense of what that meant from a tool set and a process, which is awesome as a planner. And that was the transition from Shia Day to TBWA. But, you know, I mean, you go to Shia Day LA and really hope and pray that you get to work with Lee. And I did. And that was incredibly impactful for me to this day. Peak powers, Lee? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What did you work with him on? uh, Pedigree. So which he wanted desperately. So, you know, it's an amazing thing when you work on somebody's uh, sort of passion brand, and that was a passion brand for him because yeah. he, he loves dogs, probably more than people. He loves dogs. Right. <laughs> I worked with him on Earthlink first, which was great work that I loved that was really hard to crack, um, and that was the beginning of the internet, so now I age myself. And then we worked on Pedigree together, and it was one of the first big global ideas that was birthed in the TBWA, in Chiat Day becoming TBWA. Yeah. So it was incredibly stressful, um, high pressure. And, um, you know, I think that he just always breaks down things in such a human way that it helped us find something that could travel everywhere because it came from a true dog lover. Yeah. And just – I should know that as a planner, but you forget that when you're trying to deal with 60 countries and new clients and people all over the place. And 
Um, you know, he just kind of kept getting back to that core. He's super strategic in that regard without saying I'm a strategist, you know? You're the first strategist who's ever been on the show. Oh, God. And so – Shit. Yeah. That's how, that's how much I respect Now and I'm sweating. Um, no, but, well, I've talked to others who've worked with Lee and on the creative side. So I have, I've gotten an understanding of sort of what he needed and demanded from creatives. Yeah. What did he need and demand of planners? Um, clarity. He wants uh, – he does this – I don't know if anyone's told you this story. He does this blinking thing. And it's either he's thinking – like you say something, he does a blinking thing. And he's either thinking and, and, and about to say, hey, that's really smart, or he's thinking and about to get really mad at you. And I had – I've had both experiences. Um, the latter is not fun at all. And um, one time during one of those not-so-great blinking experiences, he said to me, um, I, I need you to speak human speak. Like you're speaking client speak. And I don't understand what you're talking about because I had gone so deep into the client organization that I started to almost bring that back to the agency. And here I am thinking I'm being helpful because I'm helping everybody understand this client's psyche. And he was like, that's not helpful at all. Like you've lost the kind of human element of strategy of like real human beings and what do they need from this brand? Um, he said it in not such a nice way, not such a lovely, caring way. But um, it totally shook me. In a great way, but also I, I was like, oh, my God, he's totally right. Like I've lost that and I have to get back to that. Like you need observational distance if you're a strategist. You can't be sitting with your clients all day every day. Right. And he um, – I've never, ever forgotten that, ever. That, that might, maybe that's the great challenge of the strategist is you need to figure out how to have that distance while you're embedding yourself in their organization mm-hmm. and gaining fluency in their language. Totally. Because, and trust yeah. and – I mean, you want to help them make brave decisions, and if you're not in it with them, they 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 can't. Right. You know. And trust. Some of trust is just physical proximity. Like mm-hmm. Suzanne's here all the time. You know what I like about her? Like mm-hmm. she shows. Like never underestimate the power of showing up every day. Totally. Yeah. Um, if you could sort of magically go back, would you have any advice for that chapter of you? Um, I would be less uh, hard on myself, and I know that sounds like a cliche, but I was really kind of terrified thinking particularly um, working with creatives of that caliber scared me. Right. Like there's a hallway in that Shia Day LA office. It's, you know, it's called, they call it Main Street, and the creatives sit on opposite sides, and you have to walk down that street. And I would – like it was terrifying because these are some of the most amazing creatives in the world. And um, I just didn't think that I had any right to be there. And I didn't think that my insights were smart enough, that I was doing anything useful for them. And now I'm like, yeah, of course you were helpful. Like, of course, like whether you're bringing in, you know, just different ideas, whether you're bringing in, I don't know, the lyrics from an Ozzy Osbourne song that they need, whatever it is that you're doing to be helpful is helpful to their process. And I just didn't. You know, I didn't have that confidence at the time. I didn't realize it. I learned that through that experience. So now we're getting into it. Yeah. What is the strategist's responsibility to his or her creative counterpart? How can they be most helpful? I mean, I've been actually excited to talk to you and and as I was thinking about questions because I, I think I've had questions about the discipline of strategy my entire career. I think there's some some dots that I haven't been able to connect. I think about strategists through 
my favorite strategists I've ever worked with. But in some ways, that's not all that revealing because they're all way different mm. and they were all helpful partners to me in way different ways. So like, first of all, like what the hell is a strategist? Well, you just kind of said it. I mean, being helpful, which I know sounds weird, but you have to figure out with every creative team that you work with, with every creative, with every client you work with, how are you, frankly, indispensably helpful? And honestly, that can different creatives have different processes. And until you decode that, you're not helpful. You know, um, I can say the usual stuff about, you know, being good translators of data or being people who simplify complex things. Um, but I think you have to figure out what each creative person needs in their process. It's super scary, in my opinion, to be a creative. Like you have to create out of nothing sometimes, and especially if you're not having a helpful strategist. Hopefully helpful strategists give you something to help you create. Yeah. You know? Um, and I just kind of have obsessed about that. I've followed creatives around and worked with different creatives I wanted to work with and tried to be as helpful as I could. When you're a young strategist – you know, in the absence of saying, hey, I worked on this global brand, I worked with this awesome person, how do you communicate your ability to be helpful in an interview with you? Yeah. I I mean, listen, I'm so old. <laughs> I, ha I had my own portfolio that I built. I had my own reel because I'm just as proud of the work that we've created. And yeah. then I also would bring the brief, the sort of breadcrumbs that led to that so that I could talk about the actual work. Now, when I interview strategists, I'm looking for core elements of them as people that I know are going to be right. Curiosity, being fascinated by things, whether it's culture, whether it's – doesn't matter. Just some kind of fascination is critical to strategists, um, how they've unpacked a problem in a very different surprising way. Um, and I honestly ask a lot about the work that they love and why they love it and you know what their part was in making it. Here's what I would think is the problem with that. You're a naturally curious and fascinated mm -hmm. person, and everybody has a story to tell. So you can find the curiosity mm -hmm. and interesting nugget in anybody. Was it hard early on in your career as you became a manager not to talk yourself into people? Very. Because <laughs> I find something awesome about everybody. Sure. All the time. I mean, that's the job. Like, all find the time. something interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But until you get them talking about something they've worked on, I do look for a sparkle in their eyes. I do look for body language changes, which is so like just research 101. You're yeah. looking for some of those things that you can observe versus what somebody says. And when somebody just gets really excited and animated about something, especially something nerdy like, oh, this client had this problem and it was so tough and here's what I did to unpack it and then I found this little thing, I know that they're going to be great. And listen, there are a lot of um, – well, hopefully not that many – but in the older days old, – I didn't say olden – the older days Perfect. of strategists, um, there were certain types of strategists that I just didn't get along with. And they were more um, kind of academic and they were more – you know, they had to be the smartest person in the room. Um, and I just, I just don't love that and I don't think it creates team dynamics and I don't think it creates great work necessarily because it's this very um, – hierarchical, but also just like, I'm going to do something brilliant, and then I'm going to pass it on. And then nobody's going to touch that brilliance because it's perfect. And those kinds of, they're really planners, not strategists, old planners with a long A, I used to call them. 
you can feel that in an interview in two and a half minutes. Like I could probably do a five-minute interview with people and decide, okay, you're not going to work because you're not going to be part of something that I think is much more of a collective of strategic thinkers. And then, oh, you might work because you're sparkling and excited and let's talk for an hour more. You know, like I kind of wish I could do interviews that way. So you're biased against British people, basically. (laughs) I'm married to a British person. (laughs) How can I have bias against British people? No, but I am biased to the old kind of style of planning that was like, I'm going to go hide away and I'm going to be in my little private area. I'm going to write some really, really super smart stuff and then I'm going to bestow it on people. Like I just – I once got a review from someone – um, when I was a younger planner, but still I was running a group by now. And they said, you're just too nice. And could you just be a little bit more harsh? And could you just be a little bit more? And I think what they were trying to say is have a point of view and don't be afraid to assert it. But it came across as like, oh, I'm too optimistic and sunshiny and see the good in everybody. And that's not going to be good as yeah. a planner. And I just said, I, I really don't know how to be different than who I am. Yeah, you know, That would just be like a different human to me. Different creatives have different styles. Um, and as you talk about, one of the roles that a strategist has is essentially you know, helping inspire the creative process to get to the work that the agency wants to make to represent the agency. I mean, one thing that for my personal style, I've tried to express to strategists I work with is, hey, like if we have two weeks, let's not spend a week and then brief <laughs> It's okay to show up and brief teams yeah. and have huge gaping holes. And in fact, I would love to hear you say, all right, now they're asking for this or this. And like, frankly, I think this is bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I can't reconcile this thing they're telling us with like the way that the world or that culture really works. And so sometimes it's not the job of the strategist to have all those answers. Sometimes it's the job of the strategist to say the, the frustration or the question out loud. Yep. Get people going. Once they're going, you can keep working and actually like, you know, the work – you can keep going and you might uncover something and we can bring everybody back into the room in two days. Or you may say something that's flawed that will spark creativity and then you'll see the creativity and you'll go, you know what? Do you know why that's good? Actually, Mm. the the reason that's good is the the answer to the thing I was struggling Mm. with three days ago. So do you think that overall the – the approach to strategy is at the best creative agencies has kind of adopted this idea of like, hey, we like we don't have to wait till we have a perfect deck with all the answers before we get started. I mean, I hope so. I think you know I talk about the pressure on creatives to create um, on on demand, which I think is crazy. The pressure on strategists to crack something, sometimes in isolation, sometimes very fast is immense. Totally. So what you're talking about relieves the pressure and makes it much more of a team sport. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes, you know, I personally love, you know, cheesy term, but just having a get smart session together. You know, there's a lot of stuff that we're pulling. There's a lot of weird insights. There's a lot of potentials. There's a lot of coulds. You could approach things so many different ways. I personally encourage all the strategists to do that with their creatives. And we used to be in an era where we'd like protect the creatives like, oh, too much data scares them or, you know, too much stuff is overwhelming. Don't show them that yet. I don't agree with that. Like there might be a spark that comes from the weirdest place that we would never know if we didn't get smart together. That's a great point. I mean there's pressure on creatives that's well documented. But, you know, hey, we've got three weeks for this pitch or we've got two weeks for this assignment. And the the pressure at the at the top of the stream Oof. for strategists to sort of like 
compile the right slides that send people off on a path that can't be wrong because we don't have enough time to get mm-hmm. to like or the perception that like we kind of can't start off in the wrong place because mm-hmm. there's we don't have enough time to course correct and just the paralysis that must like you oh. know permeate when when it feels like that's the job i mean a blank brief is is our enemy right. just like a blank piece of paper is yeah. you know um, i also think with like a great sometimes a great tagline i i, I think like Imagine the first room where someone said, just do it. And the way that we scrutinize things, you'd be like, oh, let me just do what? I mean, well, and is it just? I mean, it's it's not, it's no small thing, these achievements. I think just is undermining it. And, you know, it, can we put some definition to it? Like, totally. It's so easy to do this. And yet, like, over and over again, we learn that when applied correctly, the simplest thoughts are the best. And I think the same can yes. be true for strategists, which is, you know, you put the words on a page and they're simple and they're clear and they're clean. And it's easy to look at it and be like, so that's the magic. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh huh. Yeah. But I think I think great creatives, I think great. I'll rephrase: great creative strategy partnerships, um, and business people who are in it with us as well. They can smell when something has some opportunity to it, even if it's not perfect. I think that even if you know, even if you're to your point, evolving as you go, you either feel there's something I could make from this or not. Pretty quick, right. I would say. You know, yeah. or at least most of the creative partners I've worked with. I also think when you have a, have developed some trust in that relationship, like you're desperate for each other to succeed. Like, totally. please say something. If you if it's even close to getting me to nod my head, I'll nod my head effusively because, like, we're just trying to keep moving forward. Totally. We're just trying to not collectively slam our head against a wall. So, like, even if it's not perfect, okay, we're nodding. That's interesting. Oh, that's. You know, I've I've heard that phrase, but that's an interesting that's an interesting new take on age old wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, but isn't it more fun and interesting if you come to that together? Yeah, because I think there's then a shared ownership of it, and if it has to veer right or left, that's okay too. Right. Well, and you've worked with some great creative partners. Yes. I mean, trying to work with them. Well, that's what I'm saying. Which like, I is, know is, is, weird, is there such but... thing as a great creative who doesn't have who's not a secretly a great strategist? No, although some of them don't think they are. I mean, there's, uh, you know, some of them are shy about their strategic chops, or they don't realize they're really strategic, yet they've internalized the strategy so deeply that they're just spewing stuff out that's on strategy without realizing it. And it's like, oh, there's no brief there. I'm not really strategic. I'm like, mm-hmm. You'd rather have that mm-hmm. than, the, than the other thing. Talk to me about when you're working with a creative partner who actually clearly thinks – they could switch jobs with you tomorrow mm. and be the best in the world at it. Yeah, that's hard. <laughs> and it happens. And it happens. Yeah. And that's hard. And, I, you know, I think it's – I do think you have to have some level of respect for the expertise. Like I, I – um, there was a creative who, um, you know, once said to me, I, I'll run strategy because I think it's just, you know, about coming up with the stuff before the creative. And then I sat down and I said, listen, um, are you ready to run quantitative research? Are you ready to run qualitative research? Are you ready to be that translator between all the world's data and what you need to turn it into? And very quickly, um, this person went, oh, gosh, I didn't realize all of that was involved in strategy. Yeah. And I was like, yes. And they're like, no, 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 no. I just like the po- poetry of it. I'm like, great. Let's do that together. <laughs> Well, and I'll keep doing the other stuff. Awesome. Let's talk about that. I think today it feels like 
strategy comes in many forms and there is strategy yes. that blurs the line into creative and the strategist with the heart of a poet and you go, hey, like, can you help me write the, these manifestos? Sure. Like, what do you think of this line? Will you basically now as we're, hey, we feel good about the strategy. Now, will you, will you be my creative partner mm-hmm. essentially leading up to this presentation? And then there's also, I think, the proliferation over the last five and 10 years of strategy that's built on this strong bedrock of data and analytics and strategists who come from that background maybe don't have as strong um, of of creative instincts in exchange for a expertise that maybe agencies have never had before and make them strong mm. in other ways. Do you ever find it's difficult to make these two signs, these two sides of the coin compatible? Yeah, there's so many flavors of strategy now. And um, that said, these flavors are what each person brings in terms of their expertise, right? So hopefully they can also bleed into some of the other areas. You know, I think you need all of it at times to if you're going to do a full massive global platform let's just example with uh, an entire ecosystem and you're helping your your client kind of manage their business through this kind of strategic creative platform you're creating you need all the flavors brought in at different moments though you don't need all of them all the time you still need the big conceptual visionary creative strategist yeah you also need somebody who's going to be a super duper data nerd and take that and drill it all the way through um, a CRM relationship, an e-commerce relationship, et cetera. So you need all of it, but you also need someone who can calibrate all of that. Um, I tend to speak enough and be fluent in enough in all of those flavors to yeah. be able to bridge it together. But my favorite is still writing a shit version of a planner festo. Yeah, planner you know? festo. Yeah. I mean, you got to get the logic of the idea first and foremost, or you can't do the other stuff. Yeah, some people can do a little bit of all of it. Um, and then I think there are others who who – are so strong in data that at first it's, it's hard really for creatives. Well, may, may, and even maybe sort of old school creatives don't at, don't initially realize their value. But we talked about the language of clients. Well, mm-hmm. part of the language of clients increasingly is the language of data. So you go, okay, well, you maybe you're a little less helpful to the creative process upstream. But then when we get in the room, you know, you are speaking a language with this client that totally. is giving us so much credibility. Um, and so that that just I sort of think credibility is um, credibility for me is critical because it leads to bravery. Yeah. So when you when you can ease a client's fears around things like is this going to work? Is this crazy thing that you're presenting to me going to work? And how am I going to know it's going to work? Like we can when you can answer some of those questions, that's amazing stuff. Yeah, and we need that. You know, on that data side, McCann has a proprietary global research tool called Truth Central. Yep. Can you explain a little of what that is and and what it brings to the table in this broader context we're talking about? Yeah. So I inherited this wonderful gift called Truth Central when I joined McCann um, World Group, and it was it's a global, to your point, global proprietary intelligence unit. And there's a few immensely talented people that sit in there, and they literally obsess about trying to identify the macro forces that impact human beings, which is relevant for any brand, right? So it's, you know, big, juicy pieces of work, things like um, truth about privacy, truth about beauty, truth about the new affluent, truth about global brands. Um, But behind all of that are 25 million data points. So we just have such a wealth of stuff to use in different ways. One of the challenges I gave to the team, though, when I joined was how do you make – Anything that we do in True Central as inspirational as the creative we hope to inspire. And I know that's a big brief to them, 
but it can't be white papers. It has to be dynamic. It has to be beautiful. It has to be data brought to life in such a way that it gives a face to humanity in such a different way that it sparks ideas. Yeah. And it helps clients make brave decisions. Like you immerse a client into something around, you know, globalness, and they are much more willing to buy something that's big and global and pervasive. Right. You know? So it's it's a it's a it's part of the it's part of a dream suite of things that I actually have the luxury it, of playing is with. It, is it challenging to to oversee a data operation of that magnitude? Because the best data is honest data, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's going to come as a shock to any listener that like agencies have agendas. Oh. And so is it hard to sort of separate the agenda from the integrity of the data? It's super it's, – it's been it, – it is challenging to keep a purist approach to this kind right. of thing. And many clients will come to us and say, gosh, the way you guys do this stuff is so brilliant. Can you do a study for me? And we, we, we don't. Because that will take away that purity. Right. If, if these people who are experts in this cannot go out and look at the data that comes in with totally unbiased eyes, and hence why it's called True Central, right? right. Like look for those pervasive truths, then we're not doing our clients um, justice, I think. So, but I, we do have to fight the good fight to do that because it's just a different approach to research and everybody wants that, yeah. you know? yeah. Let's put the let's just go back a little bit to the role of strategists yes. and put it into maybe a more specific context, the context of pitching. Maybe I'm my brain is in pitch mode. This time of year, anyone who's listening to this is probably working on five pitches and and I'm no exception, but um you know, so much of your job now that I've witnessed is is less about going in depth on individual mm-hmm. projects and it's about finding the right talent and deploying mm-hmm. them on the right projects and figuring out where to keep your distance um, and and how to support them along the process without doing their homework for them essentially. Yeah. When you assign a strategist to a given pitch, first of all, what is the process in your head of, of who the right person is for a given pitch and sort of what is your expectation of that person during the beginning, middle and and end of that process culminating in the in the pitch meeting itself. Oof, good question. Um, I I am pretty obsessed with talent, and what I mean by that is unearthing interesting things in people besides what their title provides, and a lot of the decision making goes into that. So you know, of course, there's the usual stuff: is it global versus local? Is it uh, what category is it in? Um, what type of pitch do we think this is? Is this about a client with a real business problem that is kind of chunky and meaty and do you need more of a business analyst? Or is this a client who has lost maybe its iconic status and culture? You know, there's different problems we're trying to solve. Yeah. So it, it, it it's a little bit of a hard approach because I feel I need to know enough about the problem we're trying to solve first before determining the team. And then it's always, yes, there's a lead, but there's a team, right? Because there's, again, all these different flavors of strategy. So almost every pitch you get in today needs more than one type of flavor. So you'll have a lead who can be that voice and can kind of pull it all together. But there's also specialties, expertise, whether it's data and analytics. It might be social. It might be, frankly, you know, a PR strategy specialty. And being able to pull all of those assets into a pitch is really powerful when you do it right. Yeah. Um, but that lead person has to be, again, a team player or they don't do it. 
They don't necessarily have to be an expert going in. No, no, not in the category. The category is less important to me. The problem is more important that we're trying to solve for. Um, Of course, then it's the obvious, though. Every once in a while, you get into something and you're like, well, gosh, that person worked on that brand before. Like, boom. At least they should be consultative, if not leading it. You know, and then I'm looking for fresh perspectives as well. You got to be careful not to put the same type of creature on the same type of stuff all the time because they bring the same type of strategy back. Right. It's muscle memory. Yeah. Um, to the second part of your question, you know, first phase, the most important thing is getting smart super fast and helping the entire team get smart super fast. And we have a process for that, obviously. Everybody has their discovery process. We have ours. Um, we're organizing lots of different things as quickly as we can to start to pull out some key themes. And that person and that team has to drive that. You know, middle, you're getting to clarity, simplicity, things that people can work off of. And finally, for for hopefully the win, you're getting to that very crystal clear logic that a client can see um, is going to actually work for them. You know, I think a strategist has to bulletproof the entire idea from start to finish. So it might be something – it might be a planner festo, but it also might be let me show you a work in progress brand architecture to show you how this thing is going to work. Or by the way, we know you have 20 countries. Let me show you the global thing, but then how that would work locally in 20 of those countries. Sometimes it's templates. Sometimes it's kits. But I think strategists have to think about that. Like we're a little bit with our business partners saying, how is this thing going to work when you hire us tomorrow? Like I always want a client to feel like if I hire these guys tomorrow, they know what to do. It's not going to be like, oh, now what do we do? Yeah, I mean, We're ready to go. Every once in a while you get the like the strategist who, you know, has run the New York Marathon five times, and then Nike shows up, and it's like, so this is the New York Marathon totally. pitch. It's, you know, all the, the talent uh, deployment totally. is not that tricky to figure out. No. And you don't have to be an expert, certainly, but it's so – I mean, I think about – Passion helps. Well, you just unlocked a memory I haven't thought about in a long time. But it, when I was at CPB, I think it was a couple years before you showed up, this poor junior planner, it was for Sprite, and the brief was like LeBron James something. I mean, we – we mocked this mercilessly after the brief, but she essentially came in and <laughs> she was just miscast and she went, so it's it's Sprite and it's LeBron James. So so LeBron James is this basketball player. And it's like, so that statement, <laughs> you actually don't need to say anything. Like, that it. tells me that, yes, you don't that, know. that you have no use no to me. Yeah. Sprite is a beverage. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so Sprite's this beverage and LeBron James is this basketball player. Yeah, I mean, player. obviously if there's a shorthand that can be created very quickly because somebody right. – is either passionate about something, an expert in something, of course. They might not be the lead. just Google this 10 minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, do you – Do you? I mean it's the question I have for you is the same one that I have for, uh, for chief creative officers and for CMOs, which is like there is a certain type of skill set and achievement required to get to a certain role. Then you get to that role and actually you kind of don't do very much of that anymore. And then there's this whole other skill set that's required. And some people – like you, you to me is, are one of the quintessential examples of I got to work with you when you worked on a few things in depth at mm-hmm. CBB. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen you in this totally different role where you work on a breadth of things. Um, but again, it's really more about global management and mm-hmm. all of the complexity that comes with that. And so sometimes you sort of discover that you kind of you discover that you're good at good, either great at that or terrible at that only by doing the mm. job. There's kind of no other way to do it but then to pressure test it. Well, first of all, do you ever miss the few pro- the few projects in depth? Or do you feel like in a lot of ways, for whatever reason, you like this part better than the old way of doing it? Yeah, I still um, annoy probably lots of people by still 
doing the craft. Yeah. Um, hopefully it's not annoying. Hopefully I look for opportunities where I can teach by doing. And, you know, I, I think, um, you know, it's pretty complicated doing some of the stuff that we do and being in strategy right now. So I still dive in. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important. And all of our leadership does that, um, as you know. Um, that said, as a strategy person, I feel really lucky because the skills that you develop as a strategy person are also incredibly applicable to companies and to global management, to your point. So the strategy for the company, McCann World Group, is still me using my strategy sort of skills, but in a very different way. Right. The strategy um, for talent. I mean, I think of everything, again, using the same stuff I probably used on California Avocado Commission when I worked on that, but using it for very, very, very different purposes. Talent um, strategy, the strategy for strategy. Every year I write a new strategy for the strategy group. So I'm still working through what that means. Sometimes there'll even be a manifesto in there just to inspire the teams around the world about what it is that we're here to do and what our purpose is. I mean, it's very similar to what I have clients do. Um, So I just feel really lucky that I still get to use those things, but in totally different ways. Um, Because running a group, running a company, um, aggregating people around a problem, it's still strategic to me. Um, so it's very natural, I guess I would say. Well, you had a global role at CPB, but there yeah. were just there was there were less locations. We were global-ish. Were, it was global-ish, yeah. but you sort of like you know the mothership was going to be generating eighty percent of the of the most meaningful work. Like this is a totally different beast, and the best work could come out of you know um, Bangkok as easily totally. as it could come out of New York. Um, how do you think about scaling your impact? Because you know you don't want to be on a plane twenty five days a month. No. I mean, the first couple of years, I was definitely on a plane all the time right. um, because you have to get to know the talent. You have to get to know um, how people are working. For me, I'm scaling by finding things that are incredibly interesting or surprising, figuring out how that happened, and then scaling that, whether it's a way of working, whether it's um, you know some way of turning up an insight that nobody had before. It doesn't matter what it is, but if something interesting happened – I want to learn about it and then scale it. Yeah. Um, so that helps a lot. I also have an incredible team. We, we have this you know, global strategic community. And community can sound super fluffy like, oh, yeah, I like each other. It's not. It's a very functional community. We work on briefs together. We tackle talent challenges um, together. And, and because of that, there's a sort of built-in team that touches uh, the different markets, touches the different brands, and they have a cascade effect on everything. So it's awesome. Um, but, you know, I think it's, again, hunting for the things that are surprising and also in equal measure, finding the things that didn't work and why. Right. Like I'm constantly interrogating, maybe neurotically so, like why didn't we win this pitch or why didn't this work come off as we thought it could? And then breaking that down, figuring it out so that we don't do it again. Right. You know, you have to. Yeah. I guess part of that too is, I mean, you have to go – over the over the course, not of a few months, but over the course of a few years, you are developing developing relationships yep. with people across the network, figuring out who you can trust. It's not just about going to them. We do things, you know, where we centralize leadership, and you know, half the point of it is just to get people talking yep. to each other and building relationships. But, I mean, one of the things that I I have a curiosity around is, hey, something goes wrong in a region. 
you know, the person who reports to you in that region, you guys have a relationship, but by virtue of the job, maybe you guys haven't spoken in four months. Mm. And now your job is to call this person who you haven't spoken to in four months, <laughs> and you have this really strong opinion of something that they've been living yes. that you've had this 5,000-mile distance from. But just because you have dis- – in fact, your distance is your is your superpower in this case. Mm-hmm. Like how much either finesse or directness does it require to pick up and make that telephone call to that person. Yeah, I you know, I I'm I'm lucky that I talk to them a lot more than every 4 months, which right. is good because we have this community and kind of a cadence to how the community works. But that said, there are always challenges that come up that are unexpected. And just I I try to lead with listening because again, to your point, they've been living it and I haven't. And I know it's a shit show, but I want to hear their version of why the shit show happened without them feeling like they're in trouble. Yeah. Like, just help me understand. I want to learn from this. What's going on? What happened? Um, and then we surround the problem. I think I think one of the things that's worked really well is um, saying to anyone in any part of the world, listen, I'm just here to help. And when I started, that was not really easily understood, believe it or not. People were like, what does she really mean? I mean, it's like headquarters calling me, um, bothering me. No, no, I'm just yeah. here to help. And it sounds do, like a trick. Yeah, exactly. And they were waiting for the trick. They were waiting for me to not be available, to not answer the phone, to not reply to an email, to not be there when they needed me. And I just would over-deliver and they'd be like, oh, God, she really is here to help. She flew in. She helped us do a pitch. She dove into a talent problem. She helped us find somebody new and hire them. Like just those kinds of things go so far to help engender um, more community, but also just it's real, right. you know. So but yes, cheer, it's, it's a long way of saying when that comes up, I'm going to listen first. And then I'm going to probably apply a whole bunch of help to figure out how to fix it. Yeah, And, and, if, and when you – when you meet their initial expectation that you're, you know, all hat and no cattle, so to speak, uh-huh. and you say you're going to be there and then the first time they need you, you're not, it sort of is like, okay, well, we are now once again justified in operating yes. in isolation yes. because, you know, congratulations, you have the big role, yes. but you're, you're a long way away. So there's no way you can care about all of that. No, you, know. you have to over-deliver. And, yeah. and, I, and I believe in that. You have, to, you have to thank people properly. You have to. I mean, there's all sorts of things that are not just about giving lip service. It's real. Right. Like people work their tails off. I'm not going to not thank them after that. Right. Well, one know? thing that I think that – one way that I've benefited um, from you and your role and the partnership of you and Rob Riley um, at the world group level is, you know, the times in the process that you guys judiciously figure out mm. when to enter mm. and, and, and hopefully if the strategy and the work calls for it, to give those people in the room – confidence yes. because they you know because they they believe in your judgment and if you're confident in them and if you're confident in the work that they're that they're showing you it just it changes the way that they present the work yes. you know 2 days or 5 days later or whatever that may yes. be I think it's um really important to know what a team needs um sometimes a team needs course correction and you do that by rolling up your sleeves and doing it with them right. sometimes they need confidence to your point um, frankly, sometimes it's a little too late to make anything more awesome than it already is. So you're giving them confidence to just go in there and stand up straight and present it properly. Um, sometimes it's, um, you know, they need more resource. Right. And I think having an open conversation about that all the time throughout the process is probably important. We do have those moments where the two of us go into an actual room and um, go through stuff with teams and you can feel in the room what they need. 
like literally. Yeah. Um, but there's the stuff around the edges that I'm not sure everybody sees, whether it's, you know, 20 text messages, a WhatsApp group, um, you know, a team behind a team saying like, hey, I've got these 20 insights from 20 different markets for you. All those things bolster. So there's a whole bunch of tools one can use, I guess I would say. And you just start to learn what teams need along the way to use them. Yeah. But some of that is instinct and some of that is just you, you got to feel it. You know, yeah. I mean, there's past experiences, but there's also we're we're con- we're still learning. We're constantly learning. Yeah. Like sometimes we do the wrong thing. Sometimes you come in too heavy, and sometimes you come in too light, right. and you're like, "Gosh, I wish I would have just said that because it was bugging me." I've learned to not do that anymore. I think in the beginning I was probably a little too like Susie Sunshine and optimistic, and it's awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. Guys, go. And there was something niggling at me, and I didn't say it. And sure enough, you know, you, the team comes back, and they're like, oh, they didn't li-. And I'm like, I knew that. So I've learned to actually say it. <laughs> right. And there's good ways to say it, you know, that still doesn't deplete the team's work and their entire psyche, yeah. you know? Yeah. On the one hand, you want to be a source of positivity because positivity in that one half-hour session oh can substantiate weeks of work. Totally. And, like, you want to give that to people because you know it means a lot to them. And then the other side of it, too, is like because you guys' words have so much weight, yeah, I mean you can come in and maybe it doesn't feel like you're swinging your yeah. weight around. Yeah. But just a little bit of like hotness in the comments can be completely misinterpreted. Yeah. Um, it's just yeah, really sometimes we have to think about it. It's true. Like some you, – well, you know this. Sometimes we walk away and have a deeper think and it's like, you know – I think maybe we should have done X, Y, Z. Yeah. So it's it's never a one and done, I would say, yeah. you know? Let's we don't, we don't really stop thinking about it, I guess. Well, let's talk about that relationship. I mean, we, we started talking about the, the strategy creative relationship. Yep. I guess that's where I pushed it, um, being a creative at heart. But, I mean, it's important. And I think early on as a strategist in an agency, it, you don't maybe necessarily think about it like I have a creative counterpart. It's more like, hey, there's different styles of creatives mm-hmm. and there's different styles of strategists. And it kind of happens organically. People kind of latch on to yep. each other and they, you know, their their styles overlap really beautifully. As you get more senior, you start to have that that more sort of formal counterpart. And that person has been robbed for you dating back to, you know, CPB um, in starting in what, 2009, 2010? Something like that, yeah. And then and then segueing sort of straight through starting in 2013 yep. at McCann. When he came on the pod, you know, he's very forthright about the ways that he's changed um, over the last 10 years. But you've had a different type of vantage point. It's kind of interesting to think about the growth of leaders, and he's a, le- he's a creative yep. leader that a lot of people admire. What have been, from your vantage point, your observations of the way Rob's creative leadership style has changed over a decade? Well, I mean, he talks about very publicly being a reformed asshole. So, you know, there's that. And I probably saw a little dash of that when I was at CPV. Um, but, you know, I think Rob always has impressed me by caring about clients so deeply and by caring about the work so deeply. And that is a very easy – I mean, for me, that's what I care about. So it was like a very easy – ne- I'll never forget, you know, I think the first time I met him was before CPB and he was actually with a client. And I met him because a mutual friend was also with that client. And I'm like, wow, this guy's like in deep with this client and they're doing all this stuff. And that's immediately for me a trigger. Um, And caring about the work and being that deeply passionate about it means you have to get super close to those clients. And not all creatives do that. You know, they kind of keep that to somebody else's job. And for me, that's a big, big positive trigger. And it's something we share. 
So I think that was pretty easy for us. Um, you know, I've watched him um, also learn to do different things globally. Like doing a global job like his is super hard. Actually, mine's easier because I think you're, you have facts, you have insights, you have all sorts of stuff that helps you understand the global landscape. Right. Global creative is hard. There's a lot of subjectivity involved no matter how good the brief is, no matter how many insights I've served up. There's still subjective, subjective taste and style. And I think that's the harder job, frankly, but I guess he'll listen to this, but don't tell him I said that. I think I have the easier job. Um, and he'll listen to the first 10 yeah, minutes. Exactly. He'll have tuned exactly, out for sure by now. Exactly. Well, he has to hear this all day, every day anyway. Yeah. Um, but we are good partners because I think we also ebb and flow energy-wise. There are – believe it or not, I have my moments of just kind of freaking out and getting frustrated. And oddly, every time I have one of those, he's the calmer one. He's the one bringing me back to like, oh, it's going to be okay and here's what we do, which is nobody believes that. They think like I'm sort of the very stable and always sunshiny and optimistic. It's not true. Of course I have my moments and my flare-ups. And he brings me right back to focus on what's important and what we need to do and, you know, just kind of cheers me when I need it, which is pretty incredible as a partnership. Now, our working style, I would say he's very strategic. He has huge sure. opinions about anything. Um, any kind of a um, strategy, he, he he never says it's perfect. We work on it together. And I have huge opinions about the work. Mm. Um, you know, in beginning days of, of, of as we entered McCann, we did a lot of pitching together. I, I wrote some probably pretty bad creative stuff um, or maybe not so bad. And um, he definitely wrote some strategic stuff. Like you go back and forth yeah. with this, this kind of thing. And I think that's – um, very important. And I think it was important for the teams to see in McCann yeah. as well. I'm not sure that they had seen a creative strategy relationship per se exactly like that, that we can fight together, we can work together. We kind of, you know, blur the lines a little bit between creative and strategy sometimes. Um, and I think that was good for everybody to notice. So McCann, the perceived McCann that you enter in 2013, the bad guy at the end of Mad Men. Oof. What a what an interesting and worthy yeah. challenge, and then this year, uh, winning Adweek Global Network of the Year. I mean, what a sort of first of all, what an incredible journey from Thank 2013 you. to now for that you and Rob really led. Here's the really probably the most hard hitting question I'm going to ask you today. Eeks. You're a strategic thinker. You apply strategy to every decision. When you wake up and you know that you're going to do a photo shoot for the cover of a magazine, that will probably be framed that you'll be looking at when you're 80. What is the strategy on the correct outfit to select? Oh, my God. Um, well, as a strategy person I on really, that th team. By the way, this isn't a bullshit question. No. When, I, when I look at a mag, I'm like, I'm really like – how do you decide what to it's fucking wear? It's a horrible, horrible thing to go through. Yeah. And I um, I wanted to, as the strategist on that cover, have a kind of tone. I was like, jewel tones. Let's do jewel tones, guys. Um, and I really, really tried. I really tried to impose a brief onto the actual um, outfits yeah. that we would choose. It didn't work so well, um, which is you know, that's okay because everybody has to have their own individual style and whatever. But for me, at you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very bad at this stuff, but I, I took out a bunch of different stuff. I looked at all of it and I was like, you know what? I just I just feel like I really like green. I feel really good in green. I'm going to wear green, whatever. And strategy hopefully it works. Up, you know, we talk about simple strategies. The strategy landed on, on green. On green. Yeah, I like it. On green. 
You know, you talked about the work. You said Rob has strong opinions on strategy. You have strong opinions on work. That, that's another, I think, interesting place to mine a little bit is the relationship of the strategist to the work. Yep. I think at a lot of agencies, the strategist is so close to the process leading up to the meeting, the sale of the idea. And then from there, it can really go a variety of different ways. Some are really kind of extradited from the process. Others sort of stay entrenched to varying degrees. You know, is there a right or wrong way? And like, is there... Is part of the job of strategist sort of knowing when to let go um, while still feeling connected to the final work that is produced, even if you're, you know, you're not in the edit necessarily? Yeah, I mean, there's two things I would say. Um, oh, this is so cheesy, but I really, really believe that creative is kind of magical and you have to give some rim to that and you have to let people um, of the creative discipline marinate a little bit and have all their bad ideas and play around with stuff. So I think, you know, if strategists are invited into that, awesome. And if they're not, we need to give people room. Right. And there's, again, different creatives like different things. And it may be that you got to disappear for a while and be ready for the questions. Because right. when the questions start coming, you know, you're kind of being invited back in, yeah. you know. Um, so that's part of it. But the other thing I will tell strategists is your job is never, ever, ever, ever done. Like even if somebody's um, – you know, the shoot is done, whatever you're doing, whatever you're making is produced. Um, it's out in the marketplace. Um, you know, you're still the one that needs to figure out how is this working? What impact is this making? How could we make it even better? I mean, take Fearless Girl. You like put a statue down. If we had decided and the strategy folks had decided, well, well done. She's there. That would have been a tenth of the idea it was. Right. It's how do you uh, – you always say this phrase, and I love it. How do you pour gasoline on something? And I think a strategist helps with that. So does that mean that you ratchet up the PR and influence? Does that mean that you um, monitor the social landscape? What does it mean? Because yeah. strategy people have all these different tools they can use to understand how things are happening. And then you go back again and kind of start over. You know, It's like it's like a whole cycle. Well, you, you said it. It's like there, there's the buildup to the – "Quote unquote sale of an idea, yes, and the strategist is quintessential to the the idea and what's at the core of it. Um, and then there's a there's another process that if that goes well that starts, which is the process from idea to execution. And throughout that process, as you said, it's not like okay, well, go off and show us the thing at the end. It's exactly that that has its own you know meetings and and hurdles and questions. And so if the strategist, as you said, is like has has kind of entrenched themselves as trusted advisor, um, not just to the creatives, but has earned the trust of clients, then, you know, even if they're not necessarily on the shoot or in the edit yeah. or or in the production meetings, they should be there to help answer those questions totally. as just the trusted person. Um, so let's talk about the client thing maybe a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, you said that you said that sort of Figuring out how to learn the language of clients was how you were trained. Is that is that strategy 101 or is that whoever kind of mentored you taught you like that is just an advantage that you can have by by investing that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's strategy 101. I started um, so early in the kind of planning era. I think there was maybe like two of us. Um, in the company, and then one left, so it was me. Right. <laughs> so yeah. you just kind of figure out that you know. In order for me, it's always I'm always motivated by the work. So in order to be able to eventually sell great work, you better be able to 
um, speak a client's language, translate for them as to why this great work makes sense for their business, um, and then again give them the assurance that it's going to work and that it's really great and it's great for their brand and great for their business and maybe even great for them culturally. And I just, you know, you can't do that if you don't understand what they're facing. And I also think that's a strategic approach. Like you apply your strategy to even looking at clients as individual humans and to look at their category and business. So on the individual human front, what is a client dealing with on a day-to-day basis? We're probably a tenth of their time in marketing. They've probably got a team they're managing. They've got a boss that is scaring the heck out of them. My gosh, if they're a CMO, they've got a short tenure that they have to prove themselves with. Um, They're dealing with production issues, distribution issues, whatever it is. They have so much stuff on their plate. We might be sometimes the most fun bit, but we also are a sliver of what they deal with. So I really do try to, and it sounds Machiavellian, I don't mean it to, I try to psychoanalyze clients and understand what they're facing into because then you know how to frame and position the work that we're doing for them. So that's like people and humans and what they're motivated by. Some clients are motivated by being famous. Some clients are motivated by making their numbers and some clients are motivated by, you know, innovation maybe. Um, So you need to know that. And then from a client organization standpoint, you know, what's happening in their business, what's happening in their sector, what's happening culturally around that, how is that changing? Sometimes we're helping clients see that because they are so deep into what they're doing that we're bringing the outside in. We're like, hey, did you realize there are six new competitors that go to market in a 100% different way than you go to market? But they're still in your sector. So they're starting to steal people. Like it's our job to bring that in. Yeah. Um, And I just think that, again, earns us the right to have a seat at the table. It earns us the right to do more interesting work for them and to solve their problems in more interesting ways. Yeah. I mean as your role has expanded, you're – your client counterpart now is is typically at the CMO level. And while, as you say, we may be a sliver of their day, do you ever feel a pressure to create the illusion that their business is the only thing you're thinking about? Oh, my God, yes. And we're, you know, more and more we're also having some CEOs um, that are working closer with us because we're helping them figure out their their platform for their company. You know, what is it that they stand for? What business are they in? What business should they be in tomorrow? So, you know, when you're doing work like that and it's either CMO, CEO, CGO or some of our other clients level, that's everything. And, uh, you know, they, they, they also are smart. They know we're doing a lot of other stuff. But at least in those interactions, yeah. they should feel that we're sweating it just like they when are. When you're honest about it, it feels like you're talking about like – your mistress or something. Like I, I find, you know, I was talking to a client and I was like, look, I, hey, there's this meeting. Is there any way we could move it from two o'clock to four o'clock? And what I want to say is the truth is like, hey, I, I've had this other thing at two o'clock that's been yeah. on my schedule for two months. Yeah. And in the same way that I wouldn't do that to you, I can't do it to this yeah. person. But in doing so, it's so like, hard. hey, I have a date with this other girl. Um, I don't know. It's just a thing that feels dumb, but it's just, I guess, it probably, it's probably just part of the human nature component that you talk about. It's hard. Yeah. It, gets, it gets a little bit easier, I think, because they do start to realize, oh, well, I really need her for X, Y, Z, but I don't need her for this. And if I, if I need her that badly for X, Y, Z, I'm going to you know, figure out when that can work for right. both of us. It gets a little bit easier. Yeah, but not May- totally. <laughs> well, I think there's a. I think there are circumstances where it's beneficial. Where you like, there are some brands that you work on that newer clients really admire. Mm. And so, without saying, "Hey, I was just with them," to say, "Like, hey, take for instance, yeah, you know, Coca Cola," and they yeah. go, "Like, you know, the 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 insinuation is like, 
Coca-Cola that I know you have some admiration for. And yes. Like, you know, when we talk to them, we talk about this thing yes. that we're talking to you about yes. now. And it will help them. Yeah. Yes. Um, is it possible to truly be friends with clients or, or does work kind of always muck it up? Ooh, great question. Um, God, it's really hard, isn't it? I'm trying to think about I've seen you be very friendly with clients, yeah. but are they your friends or are they friendly clients? I think you can be friends with um, boundaries, right? So friends meaning, um, you know, friends with professional people or people in your life, et cetera. It's the same thing probably with work colleagues, but with boundaries, you know? Um, and there's modes that you can put on. Like I think a lot about modes. You know, am I in the am I in the friend mode, and that's fun, and that's nice, and we're having a lovely dinner, or we, are we in the work mode? And I'll even kind of say that sometimes. And I think those create the boundaries. You know. Yeah. Um, and I think it's I I just I'm a truth sayer, so I'll just call it. You know, like, hey, we need to go into work mode now, yeah. and this is a work conversation. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. You click in and out. Totally. You're the mother of teenage boys who are just this year completing their first year at college yes. and their first year apart. Yes. Um, how did motherhood change your your approach to managing people? Yeah, it um, definitely made me prioritize things differently. Um, I cared much less about stuff that before seemed like a big deal because when you're juggling um, and obviously twins, you know, twins. And I thought I was having maybe one kid and then I ended up having two really quick accidentally-ish. So it sort of changes your life. Um, But they – they they made me also see things through their eyes. Like at the different stages that your kids are – and I know you've got a bunch of kids, Omid, by the way. But as they're at different stages – you, you kind of see the world through their eyes a little bit because you're putting yourself in their shoes. And I think that's incredibly powerful. You know, yeah. it's, you know, whether it's that sort of um, all, the, the always questioning stage, which I love, the why, 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 why. And you do kind of as a human start to go like, yeah, why? And you start questioning, yeah. you know, or now um, they're off in these really interesting, very different universities and they're studying very different things. And I'm like, oh, God, I should probably think about that too. Like you do. You just put yeah. yourself in those in those shoes. But again, just I think from a sheer time standpoint, you just have less time to obsess about silly things at work. And it made me more efficient. It made me sharper in my ideas. It made me move faster, which sounds crazy because you would think sure. it would be harder. But you just do. I just became more decisive. I was like, all right, let's get on with it. Let's go. As a strategist – who's always running secret uh, social experiments in all facets of your life, (laughs) to the, let's say, one seven-thousandth of one percent of listeners of this podcast who have twins or are having twins, what advice would you give to the parent of twins? Total, total uh, living a sociological experiment, for sure, having twins. Um, My one piece of advice would be to just embrace that and have as much observational time as as you are also having, um, you know, interactive time with them because it's kind of incredible. Yeah. Like the language that twins have, the sort of mannerisms, the whole nature nurture thing. I still to this day I'm like I I just don't even know the answer. Like I really don't. Especially when you have right. kids who have wow. the same exact DNA, raised the same way, and my two are so different. They're so, so different. You've made no progress on that front. I just – I can't figure it out. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. Well, we end all of these uh, all of these episodes with uh, the same 
two questions. One of them I tell people in advance because it was like tripping people up mm. and I forgot to do that with you. Thank you. See how it goes. So the first one is uh, what is your most despised advertising jargon, either a word or a phrase that when you hear it, your fucking skin just crawls? Authenticity. Authenticity. Ugh, if I, ha- I, I know we all need it and I know uh, it's important, but just it, if you say it, it can't mean that you're – being that way. And this is probably like a strategist sort of like empowerment authenticity. Like there's some really tried strategic territories. And I just worry when those words are said yeah. versus earned. Yeah. You know? It's the paradox. It's it is very important and it is a real thing. And we seek it out in all things. But if you say it, it then it ceases to be that which you wish it would be just by virtue of saying it. Totally. Yeah. Okay. And the second question that was a great answer, and I didn't give that to you in advance and you just not surprisingly just you know didn't miss a beat okay that's Suzanne Powers ladies and gentlemen and the second question is called the one that got away and again I've never never had a strategist on the show before so let's see how this goes but the one that got away is from any point in your career an idea and a pitch Mm. and I think this works for strategists I mean you're you love the work and Mm. all strategy leads into great concepts and and substantiates great concepts. So what is that one idea that, you know, maybe it's reared its head a few different times for a few different clients over the years, but you just like, you knew it would be famous. You knew it would be awesome. You knew it'd be award-winning, or maybe you just liked it for personal reasons, Mm -hmm. but for whatever reason, it didn't sell. It didn't work out. Well, I would be giving away the whole story if I told you the actual idea, but there was a big, beefy global idea for a big, huge, global client that I was in love with, that I, I personally thought it was the next thing different for this particular client, not for Apple, for yeah. a totally different sector. But I'm like, this is your – I mean, I even said it to the client. I'm like, this is your think different. Was it Wetzel's like, Pretzels? No, it was not. I'm like, this is your thing. This is going to change your business. This is going to dictate everything you will do in the future. Um, and – I just thought it was incredible and um, they didn't buy it. And then unfortunately, I don't think that we as an agency had enough conviction. And that was a huge lesson for me because I found myself alone saying, no, 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 this is the thing. This is the thing. And you can't – the whole team has to feel that. So maybe I was wrong. Yeah. I still think I was right. But maybe I was wrong. You seem like you think you were right. I think I was right. I think this would have changed this whole company's – trajectory. You anyway. just reminded me that I end all of these, not with the same two questions, but with the same three oh, questions. God, the third question is, um, I'm doing these out of order, but the third question is, what what is the most mortifying response you got to a client? You got from a client to something that you and you and a creative team pitched in the room? Um, this will be a good one. So I was in, uh, I was in a country where there had to be a translator and went through this whole, you know, Beautiful new platform we'd created for um, important piece of business. Um, love, the, I mean, I'm crying as I'm presenting the work. I love the work, whatever. Get done with everything, and the translator looks at me and she says, "The um, the client just asked why you're here, and why is this agency presenting to me? I'm not making this up. I'm not. And anybody listening to this who knows this story, I'm not making this up." And I said, because we're the new agency and we're coming to, you know, deliver this new wonderful platform to you. I'm still teary a little because I love it so much. And they're like, they don't, they don't want this. 
they don't want you as an agency <laughs> and they don't want this idea. And this is all being translated. And then the final thing she says, the translator, through, through she an says, um, no, she's like literally, he's oh. saying stuff in her ear. She's literally translating this. And then she says, and he would still like to know um, when we're going to lunch together. I'm like, so we, they don't want the agency. <laughs> they don't want the idea, but we're going to lunch together. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I hope it you was rang horrible. Up a, I hope you rang up a, a really sweet bill. Huge. Yeah. Huge. Um, okay. So we'll leave it there. And I'll just tell you, first of all, thank you for joining me. Um, this has been fun. It's I love the way your brain works. Thank and I'm you. and I'm grateful to have worked with you for almost a decade now. Scary. You had no kids when we started. I'm just I saying. Know. Life, I, life is go. a flat circle. Yep. Thanks, Suzanne. <laughs> thank you. Okay, thank you to Suzanne Powers. And during this holiday season, I am grateful for my friends, my family, anyone who has listened this far into any episode of the podcast, much less this one. Uh, I'm grateful to my partners who produce this podcast, JSM Music, Jeff Fiorello, the executive producer of this podcast, and Joel Simon, his boss. If you're enjoying the pod, please share it with a friend, subscribe if you haven't already, leave a nice review, and thank you so much for listening two seasons in, and we'll be back to you at the beginning of 2020 with more interviews with people I find interesting enough to pester into interviewing. Until then, peace. Peace.